The following is a presentation from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. It is our hope and prayer that God will use this message to speak to you. For more information, visit lifepointpeople.com. Turn to marry me on Valentine's Day. Super cheesy, but I did it. And uh, made her dinner at my parents' house because I just moved back from being back east. And I'm at my parents' house and I told them to get out and made dinner. I think steak, right? Steak dinner. And uh, I was so nervous. I had the ring. It was one of those things where I bought the ring. And I don't know if I've ever shared this, but we went in and I, I was at the mall, went to one of those jewelry stores in the mall. I didn't go to Jared. And uh, I was there. I was broke. But I found this great ring, great deal. And I can remember, okay, I walk out of there. Just so happened she is meeting somebody at the same mall. And I fortunately did not see me as I walked out, but I saw her walking by. And I took the box that the ring's in and I hid it in my sock down here just in case she were to walk by me. And the most surreal feeling happened that I'd never felt before, but it was like it was over with. I walked out of that that diamond store and I had this ring and for the first time I'm looking at all these other girls around me and I go, nope, nope, nope. It was done. It was like this, this sense of finality had happened. I don't know. It should have come months earlier, right? I've been with her forever. But it was always kind of like, eh, things don't work out. But something about having that ring in my hand and spending that much money, um, I was just like, it is over with. And it was such a weird feeling to walk around and be like, they're all, they're all no. Like, that's all no, no go zone for me anymore. And I thought that I was going to have like a month of being able to wait and I was going to plan something super romantic. But the truth is, once I had it in my hand and the idea of getting to ask her, I think it was three days. I think I waited three days. Valentine's was coming up. I was opportunist. I jumped on it. And it's great because as I look back at our pictures, there's a picture of me for our engagement photos that you send out where... um, thing that you don't know about Christy, when we were younger, she was super... uh, super athletic and outgoing. She would climb, rock, uh, climb mountains, right? Freescale mountains. She was actually way better than me at it. Uh, and she had a Jeep. Now, here's the deal. I always wanted a Jeep. <laughs> I have kind of always wanted a wife, but I have always wanted a Jeep. And she didn't just get any Jeep. She had a Jeep 4x4 Sport. This thing was tricked out. It was awesome. So there is a picture in our engagement photos of me just hugging the back of the Jeep and she's standing there like this with her arms. But I can tell you this, i am still got her, but the Jeep is gone. And every day I wonder, you know, I wonder. Just kidding. I made the right choice. I love that Jeep though. You know, I, I really feel that I married my best friend. We knew each other for four years before we got married. We were friends, met in the college group. I showed up to this college group, an 18-year-old punk kid. My church didn't have a college group. We heard about this church that had one, and I got my buddies with me. I'm feeling all confident and strong because I'm in college now, and I'm not a high schooler anymore. And there she is, one of the leaders, just gloriously beautiful. And I find out that she has just finished graduating as well, college. And uh, I'm like, let's go for it. I got this. I got this handle. I'm a college guy now. I just got shot down, basically, over and over again by her. And, uh, and over the next four years, sort of made it my goal to win her back, even though I strayed the path a little bit with somebody else whom we shall not be named. And uh, came back around, though, 
and uh, we had four years there where we really had an incredible friendship. And so I feel like I did get a chance to marry the person who was my best friend. And as I think back on that and walk by, we have a picture whenever we leave the house near our laundry room, go through the garage, of her and I at our wedding. And we got down on our knees in front of each other and my parents, my father and her father were behind us and the pastor who had been her pastor growing up, uh, Mark Buckley, who was the guy who also has been out here and was my pastor. And all three of them prayed over us in that moment. And it was cool this morning when we walked out, I saw that picture and just had that memory of looking back and going, oh, how little did I know? How little did I understand what the next 11 years of my life would look like? How much sacrifice, how much dying to self, how much disappointment and struggle and hurt how much joy, how much fun, how exciting. I just had no idea that I was jumping into a covenant with another human being. And the words, until death do us part, still ring true in my ear, that that will be what separates us one day. But the world has taken marriage, a covenant from the Lord, and we've turned it into almost a contract. We've turned it into something where we look at the terms, right? As I began to think about this, I began to think about the Jeep that I love so much. And I thought, you know what? We go and we look for a car and we really want to look for a certain model. Isn't that right? And we do the same thing with each other. We're looking for a certain model. We're looking for a certain year and a certain model. We're looking for a certain style of that model that we want. We want to see, do I care if it has all the bells and whistles? Meh. Is it something I want to be reliable? Yeah, I guess so. And so... We look at our spouse that same way as we begin to think about how most young men are looking at it. You sort of show up to the lot of life and you're looking and the salesman comes along, culture and and its ideals, and it says, hey, how'd you like to take a look at this Ashley we have? She's 22 years old. She's athletic, funny, and smart, but comes with a load of daddy issues. (laughs) And you're sitting there and you're like, hmm, 22, huh? That's okay. She's got those daddy issues, but she is smart. All right, I'll take her. Great. Did you want to go with a three, five, or ten-year lease on Ashley? Oh, well, geez. See, she's young and athletic, so that means her body should stay just how I want it long enough. For eh, I'll give her five to ten years on that, barring any sort of injury or children doing damage. And um, hmm, ten is just such a big number. Let's go five. Let's split the difference and go five. I would like to be committed to you in a lifelong five-year relationship or until each of us, one of us gets sick of the other. And that is, and I, I realize that that's a little crass. But think about it. I'm not making this up. I'm not the one saying this. Think about even the language in our culture. She's on the market again. He's on the market, right? He's available. It's sort of like, hey, a new one just drove into our lot. Our culture has turned marriage. Our culture has turned a husband and wife spouses into something that can be traded out as we see fit. And this morning, I want to take some time. I want to talk about what God designed marriage for. And again, this is going to be a six to seven week series. And so we're not going to hit everything today, but I promise we will hit all of the points. And so we're we see the best example where, where, where God spoke through Paul and gave us the clearest picture of what marriage is, is in Ephesians 5. 
And so we're going to be going through that, right? And there's a lot to unpack in Ephesians 5. We won't be doing it all today. There's a lot of the super controversial stuff. Definitely won't be doing that today. But we will be getting through all of it over the course of the next few weeks. So it'll be a fun series. So Ephesians 5, 21 through 32. If you want to open up a Bible and read along, you can. We'll have it up on the board. Ephesians 5, 21 through 32 reads like this. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. He is the Savior of the body, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, and he gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands, you ought to love your own wives as your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. So why do we study marriage from the pulpit? Why not just keep it a small group or a life group or something that you can choose to maybe do on your own? There's a few reasons for that, and I want to walk through that and lay the the groundwork for why we're going to be doing this over the next few weeks. The first is this. It's important to study all parts of God's Word. It's important to not pick and choose throughout Scripture that which you will read because you feel at this point in time it is pertinent to your life. And that goes for all subjects of Scripture. Have you ever been in a place where you're down or you're out or you need some encouragement and so you try to go to those Psalms or those Proverbs or those verses in the Gospels where you're like, this will do it, this will cheer me up? Don't do that. If you're in the middle of a, reading, of a section of Scripture, maybe you're reading Kings, maybe you're reading Hebrews, and, and you're just feeling down, continue to read through what you were already reading. The thing with Scripture is this, is it's alive. It is God-breathed. Which means you can be reading a scripture you don't think has any pertinence to your life right now. And God will use it to change and affect the way you think and act. Because it's a lie. So single people in this room, do not shut off. Do not turn off to this message. What you hear in this series could make you the most incredible future spouse anyone has ever seen. Except you. But everybody else, the most incredible future spouse... Sorry, Georgia, you're going to be great, I promise. (laughs) Corporately, it's important that we talk about God's purpose of marriage and what the scriptures specifically speak about marriage. You see, culture has interpreted marriage as something that it's not. Culture has turned marriage into something that it wants it to be for our culture, our time, our generation. And many in here, I realize this, are divorced and have been married or remarried. And I want you to know something here today. Whether you've been in this place, if at any point of the time throughout today or this series you feel condemnation, that is not from the Lord. 
That is not from the Lord. If you feel shame or guilt, that is not from God. That is not what this message is about. That is not what this series is about. That is not what the scripture is about. And so I just encourage you to rebuke it, right? My friend Mary said, you put your hands up and you rebuke it. Good friend of mine, Helen over there, had a tough health issue the other day and that lady rebuked stuff for hours on end as the health issue was going. I was talking to her, she's like, I just rebuked it. I rebuked it. And then later on, when the doctor said this, I rebuked it. And she's sitting here today and I love seeing her healthy and happy and back here and out of the hospital. So if you feel that at any point in this, as we talk about marriage, I'm not getting it right. I'm not doing that. My marriage doesn't look like that. This is not a message meant to condemn. This is a message meant to convict and open up our eyes. A message meant to sort of put us back on course. A message to say, Lord, what do you want from me as a spouse? Lastly, it's this. Marriage was created by God to deal with our loneliness. And as some of you in here have experienced, you can be far more lonely in a bad marriage than in no marriage at all. And so the point of this message is not to go out and get married to find happiness, but it's to talk about what marriage is, the purpose of marriage, and God's design for it in our lives. So there's three basic human institutions given to us by God. There's the family, there's the church, and there's the state. There's a lot of wonderful human institutions in the world, but these three were given to us by God. God does not ordain our art schools. He does not ordain our museums. He does not ordain our sports facilities. He does not care who wins the Super Bowl today, right? He cares more about what glorifies him and who glorifies him. So there are wonderful institutions in the world, but three ordained by the Lord, family, church, and state. And this morning we're going to be talking about four basic principles when it comes to the first one, family, specifically marriage, husbands and wives. So the four basic principles, and I'm going to try to get through all four of them here this morning. The first one's going to be the number one one that I focus on because it is by far the foundation to any marriage. It is the precursor to any great marriage, and it is the absolute number one offender to any marriage that is struggling. And so we start with principle number one, if you're taking notes, and it is, goes back to that Ephesians 5.21, that very first verse I read said, submit to one another in the fear of of God. Now here the author, as he writes the word fear, it doesn't translate perfectly over to our understanding. It is not out of a fear as in I am scared of God. I am worried of what he will do to me so I will submit to each other. Fear in this text is referring to an awe, an awesomeness, and an inspiration of. I will submit to one another out of an awe of who God is in my life of what Christ did on the cross. I will be so inspired that my God came down to this earth, walked this earth, felt my pain, died on a cross for my sins, became a substitute so I would not have to pay the penalty, and that will be so awesome to me that I will submit myself one to another. So the first principle is this. Self-centeredness is the number one problem in any marriage. Any marriage. You bring to me any marriage that has having problems, any couple that has struggled. I don't care what the outward workings of it look like, right? He doesn't talk to me. We don't communicate. She doesn't meet any of my physical needs. We never spend time together. We feel like strangers in our own house. We feel that we walk every single day and we are just going in different directions. We have changed as people. All of these, all of these, fall under this one title. Self-centeredness is the main problem. Now there are three sets of submission that Paul is going to talk about in Ephesians here. First is marriage. 
submitting one to another, wife and husband. The second is a parent-child relationship, and the third is employer and employee, right? This is Ephesians 6, after Ephesians 5. He's going to talk about these three forms of submission, and as we understand submission here, how Paul is using it in his writing, and how the audience would have understood it, is the word submit, we're not talking about the wives submit to your husbands, yet, I'll fall on that grenade when I get to it, but uh, we're talking about it as a military concept. Okay, so this is how it would have been understood. Submit as a military concept. If we have service members here in this room, men and women, you understand the concept of submit, don't you? You understand the concept of I don't care what your will is, you will follow the will that is good for the whole, right? You, one of the first things that are done in the military is you are broken of your own self-will, your own interests, and you are geared and built towards the interest of your brothers and sisters in the military with, in service with you. And so this idea of submit is a military term to understand that I no longer look out for number one. I look out for the interest and the benefit of the whole, okay? So as we understand this, I want, I want to understand that concept as we go into this idea of self-centeredness being the number one problem in marriage, that when we are called to submit, it is not a submissive thing. It is not what your dog does when it has dug a hole in the backyard and you walk out and it gets down and submits before you. That is not what we're talking about here. This is an interest of the whole. I am more interested in my marriage as a whole. I am more interested in my spouse than I am in myself. That is the submission we are talking about. The good of the whole over your own good. And I want to say this, it's not instinctive. Right? Can I get an amen? It's not natural. It's not something that we're like, oh yeah, I love to submit. It's totally awesome putting others' needs ahead of my own. I hate taking care of myself. Love taking care of my spouse and all of their selfish desires. I love it. Not me, of course. This is you speaking. I'm just speaking for you. It's not instinctive. It's not natural. It goes against something in us. That's weird. Because the world would tell us that humans at the base, that we're all good that we're all naturally bent towards good. We're all naturally bent towards kindness. So why would it not be natural then, if that's the case, for me to love and want to give everything, to serve out of a submissive heart for the betterment of my spouse than myself? Because that's not the case. And culturally, the idea of seeking the good for another over seeking your own self-good is seen as foolishness. You must better yourself, says the culture. You must see to it that your needs are met and that you are happy, says the culture. Otherwise, you will live a miserable, sad, pathetic life. Does that message sound true? Does it sound like I'm fabricating anything in that? See, our culture believes that we are happiest when our needs are met, right? That we experience the most pleasure, the most joy. We get the most out of life when all of our needs are met. And God is coming in complete contradiction to this and saying, no, you are happiest when your spouse's needs are met. You are happiest when you are serving the person you are in a covenant with. But how can I do that when they are so selfish, Lord? And that leads us to the wounds of people. You see, wounded people are the most self-centered people. Wounded people who have a background or a history of being broken by a family member or by a, a, a sibling or by somebody who has come in their life, right? Some outside source, a friend, a teacher. And what it does is it wounds us and it puts us in a place where now we're sort of that backed in a corner animal that 
Anything that sets off or makes us remember that trigger that wounded us causes us to lash out. And wounded people were often the most self-centered. And at this point I have in my notes I'm to give a personal story of self-centeredness. I just struggled so much with coming up with one. Um, so I was going to use one of my wife, but I felt that that wouldn't go over well and read well in future generations. And so I will just use this moment in second service of my own self-centeredness. No. Self-centeredness early in our marriage was probably the number thing, one thing we had to get over. It was the number one thing I personally had to get over. We had a great first year of marriage. Uh, we, we, we made great money in the first year. We didn't have a lot of expenses in the first year. And then we bought a house, right? Why did we buy a house? You know, a mortgage and all that goes with the house and the stress of a house and school was going on and work and then life builds up. And sooner or later, all of the kind, fun, fruity things that go on in engagement is all gone. And you just hit reality. And your true self-centeredness comes front and center in your marriage. Everything you had been sort of repressing, right? Everything you had been sort of keeping from your spouse comes front and center after the time wears off and you feel, you know, it's time for my needs to start being met. It's time for my voice to start being heard in this marriage. It's time for me to start to put my foot down on what's going to happen. And that's where all of a sudden we see friction. Wounded people are often the most self-centered because of their abuse. And the worldview looks and says, because of the abuse, they are self-centered. The Christian view looks and says, we were already self-centered. The abuse just made it worse. You see, we, I believe, and our scriptures teach us, we are born into a sin nature. We are born to love self above all else. And when you take somebody who's then been abused or wounded throughout their life, and then you enter them into a covenant with another human being, you have two people who have just have aggravated self-centeredness. And how do you fix that? How do we come to terms with that? How do we find marriages that are Christ-centered and not self-centered? Or why do you get married in the first place? Typically, it's because you're attracted to the other person. I doubt there are any arranged marriages in here, but possibly. But we get married because there is an attraction we're drawn to the other person. We're drawn to them physically. We're drawn to their personality. We're drawn to how we feel when we're around them. And we begin to see how selfish the other person is. We never see our own selfishness, do we? The beauty of marriage is it's the great refiner. It is the refining fire of our life. There is no other relationship like it. You can have a great friendship. You can have a great relationship with your brother or sister, your parents. But there is something about a marriage relationship which is a deepening, refining fire, which is meant to be that way because it is a covenant, not a contract. If it were a contract, I would give it up when I was done with it. We would both walk away when we no longer could take it. But if marriage is meant to be a covenant, then it is meant to show me a picture of what God is doing for me and what he has done for me. It is a picture of what God is doing for us. So there are a few responses to the selfishness in our life. There's a few ways we can respond. First is this. We can decide that our wounds are more fundamental than our self-centeredness, meaning this. I can decide that my wounds from, from childhood or from teenage years or from being a young adult 
They are more fundamental to me than my self-centeredness, which means I will not let them go. They will constantly be a wall between you and I. You will never fully understand my wounds, and so I cannot let this wall down. I cannot let you into this life because you could be the very person who wounds me again. Does that sound familiar? I know I've been there. The second response is this. We decide that Ephesians 5.21 is true. That I am to submit to my spouse out of reverence for the Lord. And if it's true, then I determine that my own selfishness is more important than your needs, is not more important than your needs. And I begin to submit my will to yours. I begin to give 100% even though you give zero. What's the world's arrangement? 50-50. We meet in the middle. And as soon as you back off of your 50, I'm not coming, I'm not crying. So remember in school, you draw the line, cross the line. And then they cross, and you're like, cross that one. That's what we do in marriage. Here's the line. We both stand into here, we meet it. And if you start to not meet the line anymore, then you're falling short, and I am not coming over here. And God says, no, it's 100% zero. You'll go all the way over to meet them as far as you need to go, even though they don't return it back. I can decide that Ephesians 5.21 is true and lay down my selfishness, lay down my wounds in order to serve my spouse. So there are three possibilities for a marriage, and this is how Keller puts it, and I think it's great. Three possibilities are this. Neither people see their selfishness. That is a doomed marriage. (laughs) Neither people recognize their own greediness, their own state of depravity in the marriage. And they continue to butt heads. They continue to emotionally bargain with one another. I won't talk about the fact that you do this as long as you don't talk about the fact that I do this. We will both live under the same house and we will smile for the cameras when the pictures are taken. But we know who we really are. We know what's really going on behind closed doors. And so we will emotionally bargain. You leave me alone here, I leave you alone there. We don't address the issues. Both people can see that uh, neither people will concede their selfishness. The second possibility is this. Both people see it. Both people see their selfishness. Both spouses in the marriage recognize their own wounds and their selfishness, and they plan, and they talk about it, and they work it out together. That is what we call an incredibly great marriage. That is the pinnacle of greatness. When both people lay down their own self-centered needs and once and on a daily, weekly basis, they serve their spouse no matter what their spouse does. That is an incredible marriage. That is the coup de grace where we all attain to be. But then there's a third option. This is the option we don't like. This is the option that many of you right now will just, just turn it off for a second, wait for them to get past that. And the third option is this, is one person in the marriage goes 100% and the other doesn't want to see it, doesn't want to give up their self-centeredness. One of the things Keller says, which I love so much, he says, if this is the case, you can still have a wonderful marriage. You can still have a good marriage if just one person If one of you could be the one who gives 100% and says, I don't care, I will serve you till the day I die. I am not interested in my own needs. I am interested in meeting your needs. Lord, would you supply my needs? Would I find my identity in you first, God, so that I can serve my spouse all the days of my life? That is a good marriage. Now, I know what you're thinking. Whoa, 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 whoa. 
Oh, slow down. What about the person giving zero? They're just getting off scot-free. You know it crossed your mind because you're all sitting there next to your spouse creating a little bit of distance at this point just in case I say something you need to clap for and then... Well, what about that person who gives nothing? They get a free marriage. They get served constantly and they give nothing in return. It's so unfair. I will not be in a loveless marriage. I will not be in a place where I give completely and get nothing in return. So what do you want to be in then? What do you want to be in then? What does it look like for you? You see, if we're to follow after Christ, if we're to be children of a God who gave everything when we gave him nothing in return, if we're to claim to want to be more like him, if we're to claim to want to hear his voice, if we're to claim to want to have him bless our finances, bless our children, bless our work, and yes, bless our marriage, then Paul says we must become more like him. Well, this is how you become more like him. There is no more serious test. There is no more final standing than a marriage vows of a covenant where one spouse gives and the other doesn't. But I'll tell you this, that when you are that spouse that gives, what I have seen more times than not, overwhelmingly more than not, is the other spouse begins to recognize in themselves the inadequacy, the inefficiency. They begin to see their own selfishness, not because you remind them every week of how much you gave. Here's the chart. I gave this much. Here's yours. Just a reminder. It's not love. That's, that's, that's still selfishness. They begin to see it. I'm a product of that. I can stand before you and without shame or guilt, but I'm a product of that. I'm a product of a season where I was young and in the early years of our marriage, I saw and I look back and I see how much my wife gave when I didn't want to. When I was frustrated that I got, you know, settled down so early, right? I'm all excited about marriage and a few years in, you're like, what did I do? I'm just, I'm so young and free and beautiful. Why did I do this to myself? Nobody else thought that? Just me? Okay. <laughs> see, I just put into words what you're already thinking. We, we, we begin to think more highly of ourselves than we should, don't we? We begin to look at who we are and be like, oh, I could have done so much better or I could have done this with my life and this person, they're holding me back. And the whole time, she was holding me up. And she was loving me 100% when she wasn't getting 100% in return. So wherever you're at on that spectrum, where we want to be is both of us letting go of the self-centeredness. But if you're not there and there's just one of you, that's still a great marriage and you can still have a wonderful marriage in the midst of it i got to wrap this up, so we're just going to touch on these last three, and then we'll be covering them over the coming weeks. So the, second, the first point is this. We're self-centered, and it's the main problem in marriage. The second point is this. Marriage is a promise. The essence of marriage is a promise. It's a covenant, not a contract. Consider the marriage vows, right? It does not say, I am loving you. I vow to cherish you. It says, I will be loving to you. I will be cherishing to you. I will be considerate to you, don't we? It's future tense. A vow is what you will do, not in this moment, because you're all gushy and full of love. A vow is what I will be to you in the coming years, in the decades to come. Vow, marriage is a promise. It's not feelings. You have feelings for your dog. I have feelings for a well-cooked steak. 
I have feelings for my sports team. Marriage is not feelings. I don't care how you feel about your wife or your husband right now. That is not the basis of a happy marriage is how you feel. Let's just get that through our heads right now and move past it. Marriage is not your current state of emotion. Marriage is not sex. It is not meant for sex. Sex is a part of marriage, but for heaven's sakes, animals do it. It is not the reason we get married. It is a byproduct of marriage. It is how procreation happens, but it is not the reason for marriage. And so if you come and you say, well, this part of our marriage is just really bad. You don't understand, Pastor. It's been a long time. I'll be like, well, that's not the purpose of marriage. Perhaps if you got the other two right, it would come a lot more. Never mind. But we'll... (laughs) That's neither here nor there. Marriage is a promise. The third point is this. Marriage is companionship. If the essence of marriage is promise, the purpose of marriage is companionship. The essence of marriage is a promise. The purpose is companionship. And you say, well, you don't get married just because you're lonely. Adam did. Genesis 2.18. And the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. It's the first time in scripture we see what we call malediction. Everything was benediction before that. God created and he saw that it was good. God created and he saw that it was good. God gets to this point and he says, it is not good. Malediction. It is not good that Adam should be alone. It is not good that he be lonely. I will create for him a partner comparable to him. Marriage is companionship. It was built for companionship. Your spouse was built to be your best friend, your lover, your supporter. And I just, I want to say this, I have this in here, it's a quick note because I recognize that this is one of those things that causes us married people to get tripped up. If someone becomes a better friend than your spouse of the opposite sex, that is wrong. If there is somebody that you confide in, that you share with, that you talk to, that you look forward to speaking with of the opposite sex that is not your spouse, you are headed towards an adulterous relationship. And I just want to make sure that that's clear and that's known. And that's one of those places where you've got to check your own heart, look at your relationships and say, is this honoring to my spouse? You cannot have a friend from childhood who remains your best friend if they were of the opposite sex. You cut that relationship off. Well, that's really brutal. Yeah, marriage is really brutal. We'll get through that, trust me. It's one of the best things you can do to show your spouse how much you love them. They need to be your best friend. They are your companion. It's funny because we don't base how we look for our, compa- our marriage spouse on companionship, do we? We don't walk in and look at a room full of 10 possible choices and go, they look like they'd be the best companion. Like I could snuggle up with them with a blanket, watch a movie, share my life with them. No, most of those people we've already eliminated because they don't look the way we want them to look or they're too tall or too short, too fat, too skinny. We've already taken all the great companions and moved them out and just gone for like the great show floor model and then we wonder why we aren't connecting. Marriage is based for companionship. The last one is this, the priority of marriage. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined together with his wife and they shall become one flesh. The priority of marriage. Husbands, wives, your marriage needs to be your number one priority. Not your children, not your career, not your dreams, not your hobbies, but your spouse. The Bible says that you leave father and mother and you cleave. There is a joining together in that word. There is a unity like no other relationship, no matter how intimate, no matter how personal, could possibly compare to that 
union that God has created between a man and a woman in marriage, that you cleave to each other and it says you become one flesh. It must become the most important relationship. It must be fought for. It must be protected. And it must be cherished. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, Lord, and God, we ask that you help us over these coming weeks. Lord, we ask that you help us understand how to be better spouses. For the single people in the room, Lord, we pray that these words would fall in a place in their life that they would begin to say, Lord, how do I do this when the time is right? How do I live sacrificially? How do I live not from my own wounds and selfishness, Lord, but for a love of you and for a love of them in which it allows me to lay my life down for them? Lord, we can't do it without you. Even those who don't believe in you, who have good marriages, are doing it with your help. They just don't know it, Lord. You sustain in us the ability to love like this, Lord. It goes against our nature to love this way. It goes against everything in us to love sacrificially, Lord. But if we rely on you, if we seek you daily for it, you promise to give it, Lord. You promise to sustain us in it. You don't let us know it'll be easy. You don't tell us you'll make it so we won't even notice it. But you promise to sustain us, Lord. And if that's you here this morning, I encourage you to say, Lord, would you sustain me in my marriage? Lord, I walked in here and I am struggling and maybe you fought on the way to church this morning. Lord, would you sustain me? Would you sustain a desire to sacrifice and lay down my wants and needs for my spouse? I look to you for my strength, Lord. The essence of marriage is a promise and the purpose is companionship, Lord. Would you be the center of it? Would you be the one who daily reminds me of where my strength comes from to be this kind of person for my spouse? And Lord, would you change me, not them, would you change me? This has been a message from LifePoint Church. We pray that you have been blessed by it. Be sure to check out lifepointpeople.com for more information, or you can follow us on Facebook.